Thank you, Chad and Praise Team. Good morning. I hear there's an election in our midst. Wow, are we going to make it these next few months? I've heard from some of you. Some of you are excited. You have your favorite candidate. Some of you have your person you're going to vote against. Some of you are looking for the third option. But this morning, we talk about an even more important and significant election. The election of eternity. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination is one of the, the most important doctrines that there is in Scripture. And, and there are, are courses that are taught on this. There are, are classroom discussions at seminaries and universities and Sunday school classes and life groups. The, the conversation goes on. There's volumes written about the mystery, the doctrine of predestination. And so this morning as we begin the book of Ephesians, as we search through this book of six chapters over these next six weeks and look at some of the mysteries of, of this letter to the church at Ephesus, we begin where Paul begins with this important and significant doctrine of predestination. Now, a couple of thoughts before we, we kind of get jump into the deep end, so to speak. First of all, I think the, the mystery of predestination asks the question, what is the relationship between God's sovereignty and our free will as, as humans? Part of what I believe is the image of God that's, that we're created in is the opportunity that we have uh, to make our own decisions, to freely choose to follow or to reject God, his teachings, to walk in fellowship with him or to turn around and walk the other way. And so as we talk about the doctrine of predestination, there's a lot of conversation about whether or not this doctrine uh, impinges upon free will or focuses completely and solely upon God's sovereignty. And some will fall in different places in this conversation. Now one of the things that, that at least for me, and we talk about God's sovereignty is the question of, does God's sovereignty, does God's foreknowledge also impinge upon my free will? In other words, if God knows what I'm going to do in the future, do I really have the choice to do it or not? And so as we talk about God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, as we talk about our free will, there, there seem to be some places of of, of tension, if we would say, some places of mystery. Now, when I use the word mystery, I don't want us to fall into the trap of saying, well, that's mystery, so therefore it's illogical and nonsensical. But rather, there's something mysterious in the, in the tension and relationship of certain doctrines. For example, God's will and God's sovereignty, or, or our free will and God's, God's sovereignty that somehow comes together in a mysterious way. And so, I want to embrace that mystery and try to work with our minds to try to, to understand some of that. So for me, the, the foreknowledge of God isn't, isn't a, a, as big an issue because when I believe when God reveals himself to Moses as the great I am, what he is saying to Moses is I am who I am, I, I was who I was, I will be who I will be. To me, that helps us to understand that God exists outside of time. And God is always present in the moment. He's present in the past, he's present in the present, he's present in the future. So for me, God's foreknowledge... Because of who God is and his nature and character, there's not a, there's not a contradiction in the, the fact that God knows the future 
and somehow that would impinge upon my freedom to make a choice in the future. So we jump in the deep end with the mystery of predestination. Now some of us, again, we get nervous, we get tense about this conversation. We don't really like to have the conversation about predestination and election. We may not understand it all. But here's, here's the point I want to make today. It's in the Bible. <laughs> we need to deal with it. We need to struggle and we need to wrestle with it. Now, historically, this discussion has unfolded through two streams of thought. And, and I think that, that where I've fallen down there, I think there's strengths and weaknesses of each of the, of the strands of thought that we're going to talk about today. The first is the, the strand of Calvinism or what might be called Reformed theology. This is represented by John Calvin, by Jonathan Edwards, and currently by John Piper. Now, for those of you that are kind of aware of, of what's taken place over the last 20 or 30 years in, in young evangelical circles in Southern Baptist life, there's been a, a new resurgence, there's been a new movement of the Reformed theology. Um, I, I was a part of that, or at least I witnessed that, in Waco with the passion movement that started in the 90s and Louis Giglio and his, his ministry and movement. And what he was quick to remind us and to tell was that John Piper was the theologian of this movement of the 90s. And so many of our young pastors and folks that have coming and coming through seminary have been influenced by this strand and by this tradition of Calvinism and Reformed theology. Uh, it's one that has taken root in several of our Southern Baptist seminaries and uh, some of our, our new leadership in Southern Baptist life is very much impacted and influenced by the new Calvinism Reformed tradition. Uh, one of the, the things or one of the ways that uh, Calvin reflected on this truth and on this theology in the Institutes is when he said this, he said, God is said to have ordained from eternity those whom he wills to embrace in love and those whom he wills to vent his wrath on. And so the question of, of predestination of election is that somehow God has preordained and elected those to go to heaven and God in his sovereignty has elected and chosen those who would spend eternity in, in hell and in his wrath and in his judgment. And so that, that's kind of the basic pop reflection and definition of what Calvinism is about. Now, the, the other side of that coin or the other influence, theological influence in, in the, that we talk about in the idea of election and of predestination comes out of the Arminian tradition, uh, represented by Jacob Arminius, by John Wesley, out of Methodism, and, and today currently, at least in Baptist life, by Roger Olson, who's a, a professor at, uh, at Truett Seminary. And they've kind of helped help us to, to understand a little better this Arminian tradition. I want us to go through, the, there's a, probably the most famous um, an acronym in Christian uh, theology. Is, uh, it comes out of Calvinism, out of the Reformed tradition, is the TULIP, um, is the tulip uh, uh, definition. Uh, right here. Here it is. And it goes through and it just briefly describes the five tenets of what I'd call a high Calvinism. And some of the conversations you might have with people, you'd have those that are five-point Calvinists. They're, they're high Calvinists. They embrace all these. Some might say they're three-point Calvinists or they embrace a few of the, the tenets of Calvinism. Uh, but again, this is an important way. Many of you have probably heard, heard of this, um, uh, Annette, this tulip. And so we're going to just kind of work through it real briefly, and then we're going to tie it together with the scripture that we just read 
from Ephesians. And I'm talking really fast today because we only have about 25 minutes to get like a semester of stuff in, okay? So uh, uh, hopefully today we can, we can raise some questions and begin to create some, some directions as we want to begin to, to solve and to answer and have healthy conversation in these areas. The first T, the T reflects on total depravity. Now what total depravity means is that every part of life and creation has been impacted by sin. Every part of, of your life, every part of your being has somehow been touched and impacted by the fall and by sin. And certainly Paul affirms this, in, especially in the book of Romans, where he says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. The, the Greek word for, one of the Greek words for sin, harmartia, uh, simply means to miss the mark. We've all missed the mark in our life, in our relationship with God and with each other. We've all sinned. And Paul goes on to tell us that the wages or the consequences of our sin is, is eternal death, is eternal separation from God. And we see this in our own lives. When we sin against each other, it, it creates death and separation in our own relationships. And that's, that's a foretaste of what eternal death and separation will look like. So total depravity is the first T. Now, if you'll notice, if, if you read Reformed theologians, they're going to begin always with total depravity, it seems like. They're going to focus on our sinfulness. They're going to focus on the wickedness of humanity. Now, the way I would prefer to begin that conversation is by saying, you know what? We, every one of us, every person who's ever been created, guess what? Was made and created in the image of God. Let's begin with the, the truth that we are created in the image of God. Let's follow up with, with Psalm 139 that says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made and shaped and formed in your mother's womb. That each one of us are a beautiful part of God's creation. And then certainly, as, as we experience sin, as we experience the consequences of sin, even back to, to, to Adam's sin, we are impacted by that, and we, we experience sin, and sin has impacted every area of our life. T, total depravity. The next part of the, the tulip is unconditional election. This is the point that we'll really focus on today. It's the idea that somehow God unconditionally elects some people to eternity with Him in heaven, and God, therefore, also elects unconditionally those that would spend eternity in wrath. That the person that you or I really don't have much of a say in the, where we spend eternity. That God has, has, from the beginning of time, has chosen who will spend eternity in this place or in that place. Now, a lot of uh, those that would, would support this doctrine of unconditional election want to talk about only as a single, kind of single predestination. That because all of us deserve to, to die and to be separated from God, to, to, to go to hell, in God's gracious, loving mercy, He has chosen a few for His own glory. He's chosen a few to redeem and to, uh, to, to take into eternity with Him. And they want to focus on this single predestination. I think logically that doesn't make sense. I think we have to understand that if God selects one people, He chooses not to select another people. And so therefore, what I would like to, to, to talk about is this idea of unconditional election seems to also require that we accept double predestination. 
And I think when we talk about God willing and God choosing a certain people out of His grace and goodness to, to spend eternity here and, and then to spend eternity here, that it creates some, some serious uh, theological conundrums and co- conflicts that we have to deal with. Now, if you're, if you're taking notes and you won't, I won't spell this, here's your 25-cent theological word for the day. Supralapsarianism. And what that means, supralapsarianism, what that means is that God has chosen people to go to heaven and to hell from the beginning of time. And that you and I really don't have a choice in where God would send us to. And it seems to me that the doctrine of, of unconditional election requires that we, if we accept this, that we accept God is ordaining both groups for an eternity. The next uh, part of our an, an acronym is... Um, L, limited atonement. What the limited atonement says is that Jesus died only for the elect. That Jesus did not die for the whole world. He only died for those that he had chosen and preordained from the beginning of time. And so again, that creates a, a problem when we come to scriptures like 1 Timothy 2.4 that says God desires all men to be saved and to know the truth. It causes problems when we read John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There, there are those scriptures in the New Testament that would cause us to question the idea that Jesus only died for the elect because so often in Scripture, in these, in these key verses, the Scripture tells us that God died, Jesus died for all. He would die for any that would call upon His name. But limited atonement is, is the L for tulip. The I refers to irresistible grace. The elect, this, this part of the theology would say, the elect cannot reject God's grace. They are irresistibly drawn and they are not able to reject what God desires to give them. In other words, the elect cannot decide that they don't want to be elect anymore. Just like those that are not elected can't ever decide that they want to be elected. And they want to enter into the kingdom of God. With the idea that the the theology of irresistible grace, what we're saying is that Whatever God has chosen for you, you have no freedom of will to either accept or to reject that. It just is what it is. And so therefore you can see where there's some tension there as we try to work through this. There's no free will because God determines our eternity and our task is simply to live into that. Finally, the P uh, in our acronym of TULIP is the perseverance of the saints. Uh, This basically says that the elect, because God has chosen them, God has foreordained them from the beginning of time, that the elect will persevere in their faith, maturing and growing in righteousness all throughout the rest of their life. In our Southern Baptist tradition, we we have the doctrine that's very similar, once saved, always saved, is that for the person who genuinely comes into faith in Christ, who genuinely receives him, who believes and repents and receives Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, our doctrine of once saved, always saved would say that this person then has eternal security. So very related to the idea of the perseverance of all saints. Now on the other hand, there's a, in their free will Baptist tradition, 
There is a, a tradition of, of, of being able to lose your salvation, of not being able to, to persevere or, or not a once saved, always saved tradition that you can come into sin, you can come into rejecting what God would have you to offer. And so there's, there's some doubt and there's some question in those that would embrace this free will tradition that you could lose your salvation at some point along the way. But again, in, in our Southern Baptist heritage, in, in this Reformed theology, there's this idea that those who are genuinely uh, saints, those who have become Christian, who've been redeemed, are those that will persevere and those who will always continue to be saved and being saved. So, that's a brief and very quick summary of a semester's worth of theology. A TULIP, that's, again, it's an acronym that, that is very helpful. Um, it helps us to understand a little bit about this mystery of predestination. So again, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of all saints. When we talk about predestination in this light, it seems that the focus of predestination is always on you and me. When we, when we focus on predestination in this way, the question is always, okay, am I a part of the elect? Are you a part of the elect? Are you one of those who's been predestined to heaven? Or are you one of those that are predestined to hell? A am I one of those that's not part of the elect? That seems to be the focus of that conversation. And knowing who is, uh, who's part of the elect and who's not part of the elect, I think that comes out a lot of our Western our Western culture and tradition, our Western culture is very individualistic. And so I would want us to begin to maybe reconsider what the focus of this doctrine is of predestination that Paul is presenting in Ephesians chapter 1. It seems to me as we read chapter 1 that the focus of predestination, the focus of election is not you or me. The focus of predestination and election is Jesus Christ. Open your Bible, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. If you like to, to make little notes or, or highlights in your Bible, let me suggest that you, you do this. I'm going I'm to read through a few of these passages here in, first, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to notice the focus of this chapter is not on the individual, it's on Christ himself. It's on the body of Christ in particular as, as Paul is writing to the church, the body of Christ at Ephesus. So again, I think the focus that we want to look at is the focus of predestination is on Jesus in verse 3. And I'm going to condense and shorten, so that's why if you want to pull, your, uh, pull a pin out and just make a, a mark. Blessed be the God and Father, except for verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. Verse 4. We are chosen in Him. He chose us in Him. Verse 5. He, Father, predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. Verse 7. In Him, in Jesus we have redemption. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will, which He purposed in Him, in Jesus. Verse, the end of verse 10, beginning verse 11. In Him, 
we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in Him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So do you see as we read through and as we, this, these, uh, these phrases that we've read are surrounded by the language of election and predestination. And as we, what we see is that, that all of this is contingent. All of this takes place through Him. So for me, as I've understood, as I've studied, God's predestination is God's predetermined plan to choose for eternal life those who are in Christ Jesus. Predestination, election, is about the person of Jesus Christ. Predestination is about being in Him, about being in Jesus Christ. So who are the elect? Who are those that are predestined? Those who are in Christ Jesus. From the beginning of time, God determined that he was going to choose to redeem those who were found to be in Christ Jesus. So therefore, as we read these passages, that becomes crystal clear. We are predestined to adoption through him. In him we have redemption. He made known the mysteries of of his will through him. In him we obtain the inheritance. You see, the focus of predestination is about being in him. So who are those in Christ Jesus? Again, John 3.16, one of the, the most marvelous and beautiful passages of Scripture. For God so loved the world, all the world, all the peoples of the world, that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord not wishing for any to perish. Again, does any mean any? I I think it does. Not desiring that any should perish. But for all, does all mean all? I I believe it does. But for all to come to repentance. You see, I believe that God's foreknowledge does not negate our freedom of will. You see, God does not coerce. God does not determine for us. Rather, God persuades. God invites. God approaches us. Listen to John, in John chapter 12, what Jesus says. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, certainly a a picture of the cross, if I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all men and I will draw all women unto myself. So, So instead of saying that God coerces us and determines that we're part of the elect, the scripture tells us that God draws us into him, into Christ Jesus And those who are in Christ Jesus then are part of the elect, are predestined to eternity with Him. So again, it seems to me that the question that we would ask at this point, if if we understand that those who are elect are those that are in Christ Jesus, and that God invites all, God desires all to come to repentance and faith in Him, that the next question that we would want to ask is, well, okay, if we understand this, can we know, can I know, and can you know If you are in Christ Jesus, how how do we get to that place in our life where we are confident that we are in Christ Jesus? Again, in verse 13, I think Paul offers, uh, offers a direction. He says, in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, and the message of truth is the good news of salvation, having also believed 
then you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So how can you know that you are in Christ Jesus? Paul wants us to know that 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 knowledge begins with listening to the truth, with listening to the gospel, after listening to the message of truth. Paul often speaks about the mystery of hearing, the mystery of listening to the gospel and, and something mysterious and something dynamic happening as we hear the message of salvation. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says it this way, faith, faith in Jesus, comes by hearing. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul asks this question, how did you receive the Spirit of God? Hearing with faith. There's something that takes place when we hear the gospel. It's why the proclamation and the the telling of the story of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, is so critical and so important. Because in the speaking of the gospel story, in the hearing of the gospel story, the mystery of faith and belief begins to germinate. And people begin to be drawn to that story as the Spirit of God moves and interacts. So listen, after listening to the message of truth, having believed, there we go, as we listen, there's something going on that draws us to believe. As we read in John 3.16, as we read in 2 Peter 3.9, the response to hearing is the response of belief. It's the response of repentance. Belief and repentance are not works. They're not works that earn our way into heaven. Belief and repentance and faith are responses to the good news of Christ. So as we hear the good news proclaimed, then we respond to that good news through repentance, through turning away from sin, acknowledging our sin, but also through believing and receiving the good news of Christ. And then look what it says in verse 13. So in Him, after listening and also having believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So how do you know if you're one of the elect? How do you know if you are in Christ Jesus? If you've been sealed by the Spirit of God, what does that mean? Well, maybe we can begin to have a little bit of understanding. As we would see, and it says in verse uh, um, 14, the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your eternal life. So as we hear and receive the, the gospel story, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And the Spirit of God begins to move and to, to transform and to renew us. We talk about new birth. We talk about new life. Paul says you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that's the down payment for an eternity of life with Him. The Holy Spirit is the proof of our being in Christ. Let me use the example of of a wedding ring, an engagement ring. We had a lot of wonderful, fantastic weddings this summer. Church members, friends getting married. It was fantastic. And part of that ceremony is the exchange of rings. And in the exchange of rings, what you're saying is, I'm going to wear and I'm going to accept this ring as a symbol, as an outward expression of my fidelity and love and commitment to you. 
But before the marriage, the, the engagement ring, although I know it's the same ring, maybe with a little addition at the wedding time, but the engagement ring acts as a lot of, in a lot of ways as, as the seal of this relationship. It's given as a seal. It's given as a commitment. It's given as a promise of your love and of your fidelity. It's received as a promise of your love and faithfulness to the one that you intend to marry. And so that engagement ring becomes the evidence it becomes the down payment. It becomes the proof to all the world that what? That you have made a commitment of life to someone else. The same thing works with the Spirit of God. As the Holy Spirit comes within us, that is God's way of promising and sharing and proclaiming to all the world that you have been sealed, you have been become a part of the body of Christ. But again, how, do you, how does that manifest itself? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It, it seems to me that if, if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, that part of the manifestation of that is that, that over a period of time, that transformation begins to manifest itself outwardly in our lives. So that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control become a part of the new nature and the new character of who we are. Now certainly it doesn't happen overnight and for, for folks like me it's going to take the rest of our lives, right? But there can begin to be some fruit of that. So the promise of Scripture, the mystery that we're talking about today of predestination, I believe what Paul is trying to say is that through Jesus Christ God has chosen and God has elected to redeem a people the people of Christ. And as we hear that beautiful message of salvation and we respond to it by faith and believing and repentance that we enter into that body and we are sealed through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives who then begins to manifest this fruit from our lives as we become that new creation in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we have the opportunity and, the, and the, the mandate and the mission to go and to share and to tell others in, in our world, in our community, across the street, across the ocean to go and to share this same good news so that all men, so that all women have the opportunity to come and to believe and to become a part of Christ Jesus. It seems to me that the mystery of predestination is the proclamation of being in Him, in Jesus Christ. This morning, do you find yourself in Him? Or is He drawing you unto Himself this morning so that you can receive and believe and so that you can become a part of the body of Christ and be in Him those 
from the beginning of time, predestined to life in eternity. Let's pray.